right. Well, today we have an exciting study that we're starting up. Could you uh, run and grab a copy of that book for me? It's in the back. Um, we're starting an exciting new study called Confidence in Christ. This is actually one of the first studies that I wrote for, uh, for our ladies' Bible study here that they, they used it uh, for, for that. And we uh, liked it so much that we decided to go off and, and publish it. So while we'll be doing this study, thank you, my dear. You can always go on Amazon, or if you're, if you're by the church, just come on by the church and pick up this study book. We will be following this study book uh, pretty closely. Sometimes we'll do two, you know, two meetings over one session, or over one session, or we'll do um, two sessions at once. Like tonight, we're going to cover the first two chapters. But if you'd like to have this at home, again, you can find it on Amazon.com. You just search for Confidence in Christ by Bradley W. Maston. Don't search for Brad Maston. I'm not that famous. It won't go to that. You got to do the full name, and that's how you can key into it. Uh, but um, if you'd like to have a copy of this or just write, get, reach out, get in touch, and we're happy to mail you one or get you an electronic copy. I think we still have some of those. Uh, it's also available on Kindle. Um, so if you'd like to follow along in the study, that's there for you. Please uh, avail yourself of those. We've got several in the back. So, But I wrote this study because I think it is such an important topic and, and honestly a, a too rarely discussed topic. Mostly when we teach through the Bible, we teach through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that's important because we don't want to miss what God has to say. And just look at the parts that are easy or convenient for the pastor to find. <laughs> but what we want to do, in, it, it, so in most of the cases, we're always working through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But there's a time and there's a place for us to look at a topic as it spreads throughout the Bible. And this time particularly, it seems worthwhile to, uh, to, to spend some moments and consider what it means to have confidence, to live with confidence, and particularly for us to have uh, confidence in Christ. So, a, a quick story to help get us into this idea. Uh, standing in front of a paper shredder in an office was, with a paper in hand is a CEO. And the CEO says, listen to this you know, young executive. Listen, this is a very sensitive and important document, he says, standing in front of the shredder. And my secretary has left. Can you make this thing work? And the young man, of course, totally proficient with office machinery, says, certainly. Turns on the machine on, inserts the paper, and there it goes. And the CEO says, excellent, excellent. I just need two copies. <laughs> you see, he had just a little bit too much confidence that his boss had any idea what it was that he wanted in that situation. And that's kind of the problem that we can often get into when we assume that someone's trustworthy or something's trustworthy, and then we put confidence in that person, the results can sometimes backfire and even come back on us. But confidence is obviously an abstract idea. You can't go in and get a bucket of confidence and they don't sell confidence by the pound. So we have to have some ideas on what it means and how it relates to uh, what we generally talk about more frequently, ideas like faith and grace and trust and so on and so forth. So if you look up confidence on dictionary.com, you'll get uh, this, actually this exactly. Full trust, belief in the powers, trustworthiness, or reliability of a person or thing, such as we have confidence in their ability to succeed. Or belief in oneself and one's powers or abilities, self-confidence, self-reliance, or assurance. His lack of confidence defeated him. Certitude, assurance. He described the situation with such confidence that the audience believed him completely. 
or a secret that is confided or impartially trustfully. The, the friends exchanged many confidences over the years, or especially in European politics, the wish to retain an incumbent, incumbent government in office shown as a vote in a particular issue, a vote of confidence. Finally, presumption or impudence, her disdainful look crushed the confidence of this brash young man. So this idea of confidence constantly has that idea of, of faith, trust, but uh, faith and trust may be related to it, but it's more so a perspective that you've got it all under control, right? And I want to note something before we start. There's going to be what I call little c confidence or lowercase c confidence and uppercase c confidence, right? Now, when you start anything, unless you're an absolute fool, then you start with little c confidence. You're not really very sure. You're learning how to, whether that's, you know, again, change the oil on your car or uh, paint pictures or even, you know, something rather simple like assembling models. You start with very little confidence as to how to do it. But as you keep doing that, you gain instruction and you practice and you grow in confidence, right? You become more confident about that specific thing. And you move towards a mastery, you will have a great deal of confidence, okay? And some people have arbitrarily assigned mastery at about 10,000 hours. Now that's wrong. Because 10, 000, that gives the suggestion that anything you do for 10,000 hours is going to give you mastery. But the reality is, is if you practice something wrong, 10,000 times, you're just going to know how to do it wrong very well. It, 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 there's, there's something about actually practicing something and, and learning, getting good instruction, getting the right information in order to grow in a, in a real and expected uh, confidence in it. And this is what we call small, or this is what I want to refer to in our discussions as lowercase c confidence. I and it's the kind of confidence that we uh, will experience in certain areas of our lives. Maybe you've been in a job for a certain number of years. You started off and you were underconfident there, but you're now very confident that you're able to do your job well. Or maybe it's your hobby. You know, you started off with little confidence, and now you're to that point where you're very confident about your ability to do it, right? And that is different than the capital C confidence that we want to talk about. That's the confidence to walk through life with an assurance that everything is under control, that it's going to be okay, right? That's the difference here. So this is the, interesting because the feeling of being confident in our situation and the world around us is so attractive that some people will shut them up, themselves up into the smallest part of their lives or some small corner of their lives so that they can always enjoy that feeling of confidence and never leave that comfort zone because they don't feel as confident in that situation, whether it's a social situation or this situation, and thus will be just have an eternally ever-shrinking world down to the one or few things that you feel truly confident around. Um, and when we're talking about in this study is mostly that uppercase C, that capital C confidence that enables us to even go into the most scary, unknown, unexpected situations where we know we have a great chance of failing or looking foolish, but being able to approach that with a, a correct attitude. 
And so I'd like to make this observation that confidence is not really a, a reality, but it's a perception of reality, or maybe we might say a relationship to reality. It has to do with how you feel about a certain situation, a certain relationship, a certain other person. It's a perception, right? You can have confidence in another person and have that confidence be confirmed. And you could also have confidence in a person and have that confidence be uh, let down. You can be let down, right? Additionally, you can have no confidence in a person. I'm absolutely sure that he's going to fail at this or absolutely sure that she's not going to come through. And then they might, right? So your confidence doesn't necessarily relate to the outcome specifically. It can maybe influence it. Um, but it's just a, it's more of an attitude as we think about it. And I want to examine some bad ideas or what I'm going to call bad ideas that come to us in our culture. They're all somewhat related, but they come from places. The first one's from, um, I think it's from... Um, what's the musical? Sound of Music, right? What a, what a lovely musical with such terrible ideas. Well, at least this one that's just terrible. She says, I have confidence and confidence alone. She has confidence just in the sake of having confidence. And we've seen uh, confidence can be built up. It can be won. It can be earned over time. But just having confidence and confidence alone is a ridiculous and absurdist idea. Another idea that goes along this is Fake it till you make it. I actually did research on this term and the next one because I'd heard them in a specific movie called Boiler Room. Not recommended. But uh, these ideas had come up there, and I wanted to see if you could track them down. You can't. They're, they're old, and nobody knows who first said it. But the idea is here, if you're not confident at something, pretend to be. Fake it until you make it. At one point, you'll eventually you know, become or earn the confidence that you're pretending to have. What this is, in essence, is utter rubbish. If you feel underconfident, faking an emotion, faking a feeling, faking a sense of confidence, as we're going to see, is absolutely abhorrent or should be absolutely abhorrent to any Christian person. We are meant to be authentic with our feelings. I'm not saying we should be insecure and walk around shaking all the time. We'll look at how we're meant to approach life. But the idea that you should lie to yourself and others and pretend to be proficient and pretend to be confident when you're not is not only grotesque, it also betrays the core problem with our modern view of confidence. And that is that there's some sort of value in, attributed to us if we are confident or if we're capable. Our value is wrongly, but oftentimes related to how much we can do or how much we're worth in the eyes of others. And so confidence is a way to almost uh, give a false illusion of value that I uh, give to you because I have put my self-worth in your hands, right? Fake you make it. The other one is uh, probably more uh, in the new age circles. It's act as if. Act as if you were already great at it. You want to be a great actor? Act like you already were a great actor, a famous actor, whatever it is. If you want to be a successful business person, then act as if you already were a successful businessman, and then that will somehow manifest. And again, it creates in us a deep duplicitousness that is unacceptable, right? And that's why so often these people who you meet who are deeply overconfident and deeply... Uh, self-confident can be so repellent in person because they're so busy trying to fool themselves and hoping that you're fooled too that there's never any chance for them to share any intimacy with anybody else ever 
It's a perfect scheme of the enemy in order to cause us to play on our sense of vulnerability and weakness and try to get us to pretend like we're not in any way vulnerable or in any way needy or in any way uh, might have any shortcomings. So then the next question is, why are we so attracted to confidence in others? What is it about a confident person, even a person who has very clearly no reason to be confident, that still brings attraction to us? Well, again, it appeals to, as we'll see, it appeals to our sin nature. We want to know that someone's got it under control. We want to think that someone's got a great idea. In fact, we probably want others to think that we are that person who's got it under control, who's not... Uh, worried. So we're attracted to confidence, and confidence can make us attractive, even if that confidence is fake. And so the question that we're going to ask is, in this study, over the next several weeks, is how can we live with an authentic or a true biblical confidence, right? I believe that the Lord has more for you and more for me than just faking it till we make it. I believe that as we understand the word of God and understand what it means to live in our confidence in Christ, it will affect everything else about the way that we uh, interact with every other situation. And I furthermore believe that there is no way for a person to have a healthy confidence apart from Christ. There's no way for you to have a healthy confidence apart from Christ. So we're going to start, as we often do, with some of the problematic ideas about confidence or, or mis misnomers, whatever, on confidence um, that we can be attracted to. Confidence is actually a thing that we need. We need to have some confidence in the world around us, right? We, we look around and we're trying desperately to make order of every situation. We're drawn to this news site or that news site, knowing that they're probably lying or at least misuninformed, right? Is it, was it Mark Twain that said, if you read the newspaper, you're misinformed, and if you don't read it, you're uninformed. Either way, you've got an information issue. You're just trying the best you can. I know I goofed that quote up, um, but, but that's the idea. We long for confidence. We need confidence, and so we'll look for it just about anywhere. We'll accept uh, a political party and say, well, what those people are saying, that gives me confidence. They've got it right. We'll look to a newspaper or a, a, a book or an author or some human thinker or philosopher and say, well, goodness, they're, they're the ones who've got it together. I'll follow them, not realizing that oftentimes that person is just as goofed up, possibly more sick than you are, right? as we see often in our own uh, leaders of all stripe, whether they be of you know, the Hollywood variety or the intellectual academic variety or the uh, political variety, it doesn't matter. So we have all these, uh, these, these people to whom we are attracted because they give us a sense, a false sense, albeit, but a sense of confidence. And we're going to see how that, uh, how that doesn't work. So the first thing we're going to talk about is false confidence. So there's two ways that we can look at false confidence, okay? There's, the first is probably the most common, and that's the idea, idea of a projected confidence when confidence isn't there. Just, again, pretending to be confident. But there's another kind of false confidence, and in order to explain this, I have to tell a story. You see, when I was growing up, when I was a young child, younger than Atticus, actually, actually exactly Atticus's age, I had been thoroughly and richly lied to. 
Every single Disney movie or mo children's movie I watched always ended with some sort of variance on, you can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want, you can do anything, right? And I got that message and I, great fool that I was and am, believed it. And then I got other misinformation into my world and that whenever I ran around on my shiny new sneakers, my parents would say, grandparents would say, or someone, some well-meaning older person would say, wow, it's like you're on wheels. You're so fast. And so I thought, I am quite fast. Remind me, or re be mindful now. I was built just as much like a marshmallow then as I am now. I was fast for a marshmallow, but not for a human. Well, I was quite convinced, though, because it's all that I'd ever been told. No one ever said, you are a slow marshmallow. <laughs> Probably a nice thing for them to not say, nevertheless. I was sure that I had just gotten new, new sneakers, new shoes, that I was quite confident at least doubled my speed. And so when I was talking to my friend at school, my friend Richie, he told me that his parents nicknamed him Wheels. Because Richie was fast. And I said, oh, but Richie, you don't understand. My, my parents also tell me that I have wheels. And so, uh, again, a friendly, it was a very friendly competition. We decided that we had to, at recess, find out whose parents were correct. I think you can see where this is going. <laughs> we got down, and one of my friends said, no, Richie really is fast. And I said, yeah, but so am I. He said, okay, look, if you want to win this race, Brad... Then you've got to take big steps and make the big steps fast. And I said, you are full of stupid and obvious information. <laughs> and yet, he was right. So we immediately had our friend, you know, stand in front of us, as friends do, and say, of course, ready, steady, one, two, three, go. And we started running, because that was the official way to start, at least on our playground, started, started anything. And I began to run, and I thought, surely I was destroying my friend Wheels Richie Rodriguez, and he was so far ahead of me <laughs> that by the time I came around, I thought, oh, well, you're still here. Like, I must have really, really defeated you, and, and it turns out, no. I had false, false confidence in that situation, right? So um, false confidence can be very, very dangerous. Of course, that was a rather charming situation and a good moment for me to realize that marshmallows can have dreams, but they should be consequent with marshmallow goals. And so here we are. <laughs> Nevertheless, false confidence could, in other situations, and over uh, a false confidence about the ability to do something or, or, or to be something in any given situation can cause a great amount of difficulty or even uh, harm or death. Not unrelated is the idea of overconfidence. And overconfidence, I'd like to share another story, is that, whoa, that's not okay. Hold on just a moment. Um, overconfidence is, is um, well described in my life. It's great when we talk about the embarrassing things because I got lots of those stories. See, when I was in high school, I thought that I was a really a pretty reasonably good musician. I was one of, if not the best, guitar players and singers and performers in my school. At least I felt that I was. And I got the lead in every uh, high school musical and some of the plays. And I just 
knew that this was something that I was really, really great at, at least according to the, the pool that I swam in, a small school, a small Denver city school that didn't have any huge focus on the arts. So, you know, it was kind of a, one of those tallest midget type situations. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought I was really quite grand. Well, then I decided to come up here to CSU and major in music, thinking that I'd be a walk-on for most of those situations. But it took me only a moment to find out that... Be Good enough for the lead in my high school wasn't even good enough for the chorus in college. I was so sure that I had just, uh, that I just realized that I had a lot of work to do to catch up, if I could even catch up to the talent that some of these other people, musicians, were bringing to the table and the amount of work that they'd done uh, to, to amplify that. And I realized that somewhere along the line, I'd gotten a very overconfident and unduly overconfident view of myself. And it was humiliating. It caused my own humiliation on a handful of situations where I thought that, you know, I thought that I was going to be something, really something. Finally, we're going to look at self-confidence. And self-confidence deserves quite its own uh, quite its own viewpoint uh, on this or part in this discussion because it is really a part of the flawed uh, world view or world philosophy that we see propounded. We are looking for self-confidence. We're looking to uh, give people self-confidence as if that is something that we could, they would uh, succeed better at if we could, if they were just more self-confident, right? This is a problem. We're going to see. We're going to evaluate this in light of the, the biblical point. But this has been the Disneyland uh, ethic. This has been the self-esteem ethic ever since it began. And I'm not saying that there wasn't a place for it, that there wasn't some place for, uh, there isn't some place for taking kids who feel run down, who feel useless and feel whatever it is, and reminding them that they're loved and they're valued in the lives of people around. So I'm not trying to be unnecessarily hard-hearted in this. But I do want to note that a sense of self-worth and a sense of self-confidence that is based upon false information is not going to hold up. It doesn't make people who feel whole and feel happy and are productive. It makes spoiled brats. It makes people who are uh, intolerable to be around because they have just had it affirmed that they are wonderful and valuable no matter how they are, and they should get their way no matter what because they're so wonderful and valuable, right? So it, it's a, it was uh, certainly a, addressing a, an important need but it was a misaddress of that important need. And we're going to see just in this study, but in the larger uh, scope of the series, what we really need to understand. So we're going to look at three biblical reasons for a person to have self-confidence. And we're going to start at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. If you want to open your Bibles. Genesis 3, 1 through 7 gives us our first biblical reason for self-confidence. Of course, this is Adam and Eve. They've been created in God's image. They've been placed in the garden. He's given them a job to be fruitful and multiply, to care for the garden, to tend it and care for the animals. And now we see a serpent steps on the scene. It says, he was, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not, uh, sure, not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So they put their confidence in two major places. They put uh, our forefather and foremother put their confidence first and foremost in the deception the lies of satan over the word of god and then they put their confidence in themselves right the confidence in themselves to be like god they wanted that that sounded attractive to them to be like god to be master of their own destiny to fulfill and say my will be done instead of thy will be done right so they put their confidence in the wrong place and something changed. They found out that they were naked. They were always naked. They were always you know, conscious of that in a sense, but they didn't realize that that nakedness meant that they were vulnerable. And so they, had to, they felt, even though they didn't at this point, they felt they had to protect themselves, protect themselves from one another, right? To hide what they thought was uh, vulnerable, shameful, naked. They, ch they changed in their relationship to nature, they changed in their relationship to one another. And finally, and most importantly, they put an unbreakable barrier between themselves and the God of the universe. I want to remind you that this is humanity at our best. And you could say that you would do better, but I assure you, you and I would do the same. And I promise you that on the pure and simple basis that we are sons of Adam and Eve. Whatever they had done, we would have done in their stead. That is just the reality of it. And it changed the nature of our uh, relationship to God and to each other and to the world and even to ourselves. So, should this bring us confidence? Well, this one's kind of a miss, isn't it? Not a lot of reason for us to place confidence in ourselves here. Let's see if the next one picks us up, though. Maybe, maybe we'll get, find a good biblical reason for self-confidence in Isaiah 53.6. Let's see. Isaiah 53.6. Of course, this is in the, uh, the wonderful messianic chapter written 600 years before Jesus walked this earth that perfectly and poetically describes his crucifixion, his, um, his death and resurrection for our sins, substitutionary death specifically. But Isaiah 53 and verse 6 describes humanity. And it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, all means all. Not only do we see that our, our, our forefather and our foremother, Adam and Eve, uh, failed by trusting in Satan, by trusting in themselves. So we find that we also all have gone astray. Now, of course, the image here is of us as sheep. And as we studied in our Psalm 23 study, not all that long ago, we find that 
sheep are not masters of self-defense. They're not even terribly close. Although a kung fu sheep who had mastered self-defense would be an excellent idea for a television show, oh, it would be only because of the absolute absurdity of it. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that we're, compares us all to sheep, but like sheep who have gone astray. You see, a sheep who has gone astray is away from the safety of the herd, is away from the safety and protection of the shepherd, is away from any hope of doing well, of coming out well. And the scripture tells us that all of us were in precisely that position. So should this bring us a lot of confidence that we were all gone astray? And we've all chosen our own way instead of the wise path of the Lord. We've all put confidence in ourselves, and it's brought us all to the same place of needing an intercessor, needing someone to come in and save us. Man, I really mistitled this slide, didn't I? This is another not great reason for us to have self-confidence. In fact, this is another reason for... I think you're catching on what's going on here. Let's look, try, turn to Romans 3.19. See if this 3.9-3.18. Let's see if that it pulls it around. Maybe we'll come up with at least one good biblical reason why you should be working on your self-confidence and you should be a confident, self-assured individual in this world. Romans, surely we'll come to the rescue. Romans is a great book. Romans is definitely... Romans 3 is talking about the situation of all humanity. In fact, 1 through 3 is essentially putting all humanity in the same boat in terms of our relationship to our need for the Lord. 9 through 18 says, <clears throat> for, oh, sorry, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No one, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside and they have together become unprofitable. There is none who do good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not a lot of self-confidence to draw out of this passage, is there? We're not righteous, no, not one. We lack understanding. Is that fair? I think as we look and evaluate what we know, even the uh, talking heads and the most bright and clever people of this world seem to have no real understanding of, of what's really going on. None who seek after God. All turned aside. We're all unprofitable. No one does good. No, not one. The idea of our throat here, the mouth being a picture of what comes out of our mouths, is like an open tomb. Now, that's a more vivid image than we might give it credit for, right? Because we don't have a lot of tombs and sarcophagi around. We're generally going to tend to cremate and, and, and put, put people in a place or perhaps bury them six feet underground in a very, very, very sealed uh, concrete situation around a nice casket. But then... In biblical times, you would generally have a grave, like a cave in which you would put the bodies, and those bodies would maybe be wrapped or treated with some kind of spices, but ultimately just be decaying. And so any time you opened up that, that stone or that, that cave or went near that cave, it would be rich with the smell of death and decay. And so here 
a human mouth, all of us, not just some of us, says that our mouths are just like that open tomb with the stench of decay coming forth. Pretty graphic imagery. With our tongues, we practice deceit. Ask ourselves, have you practiced deceit? We were just talking with Shireen about how easy it is and how easily and quickly people lie. It's even amazing to think doc, one of the things that uh, doctors whose entire function is to, uh, see to their health, see to people's health needs have to allow for the fact that very frequently, for no apparent reason, people will lie to their doctor and withhold important information, again, to only their own deficit. The doctor only wants to help, and yet people will lie to their doctors just to do it, just to avoid that sense of vulnerability. So uh, I think we can all identify, I hope, with the reality of that deceit. This is the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet. So in other words, uh, the feet is a symbol of what we do, right? Humans' doings are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. So this leaves us all hopelessly shut up under sin. And it looks like we're 0 for 3. Zero, zero reasons. We need to totally change this slide, don't we? We have zero biblical reasons for self-confidence. I want this idea to come through very clearly because it's a hard pill for us to swallow. We as a culture, we as a society, perhaps even we as a world, have been working and nurturing ourselves with this diet of trying to maintain an idea of self-confidence that involves the, the deception that it's okay to lie to someone to make them feel better. In fact, it's better to lie to them and make them feel better than to have them deal with the truth and maybe uh, suffer or struggle a little bit. But it's endemic to all of us. You see, we derive much of our sense of wealth, be, well-being, confidence, and identity from a bunch of things that we never should. And this is our problem, right? We look at our abilities or our perceived abilities. And so we see someone that makes us or some situation that makes us feel insecure and we feel, hear that voice in the back of our head that says, yeah, but I'm really good at checkers, right? There's a comedian who, who said, that he was sitting on, a, sitting on a train and he heard someone say, I'm really good at checkers. And he said, that's a really interesting way to say I'm not good at a lot of things. And he's probably right. But we'll look at some ability and say, at least I'm good at this. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. He's taller. She's better looking, stronger. That person's more wealthy. But I'm really good at, or I bet he doesn't know about. And we'll try to take that ability and blow that up into a sense of self-worth or a sense of confidence. We'll look at our accomplishments, right? Many of us will hang our accomplishments up on the wall. And in fact, again, much of self-help literature involves trying to celebrate even the most minor achievement and say, look, give yourself a pat on the back. You did good today. Whatever you did was good. Feel good about it, right? And we wonder why that's not satisfying long-term. We might look to our professional life and say, I was the best in my field or I was successful in my field or whatever it is that we might feel. Uh, we're trying to get a sense of sat professional satisfaction from our professional life. And this is why so many men become workaholics because they feel that sense of confidence. They feel that sense of assurance from their professional life. So they disengage from all the other things in order to go to that one place that makes them feel good, that makes them feel in control, that makes us feel powerful or whatever it is. 
We might look to our popularity. Oh, yeah, he's really brilliant, but nobody likes him and people like me, right? The people we can put around us. Our looks sound so silly and vain. And even in this world, right, we put a high priority, a high preference on how a person looks, whether we want to look uh, tough or strong or beautiful or attractive, whatever it is, we will look to how we present ourselves and try to find a sense of confidence there very frequently. Our intelligence more than anything else. In fact, I think in American society today, particularly that with a huge emphasis on kind of office work and, and tech jobs and all that, the coolest thing you can be is a smart person, right? The nerds have, have won the day, which means that the worst thing that you can be, in previous ages, the worst thing you could be was a coward and a weakling. Now the worst thing that you can be is a, a, a moron. Someone who's unintelligent, right? That's the worst thing that could possibly be is someone who doesn't have uh, enormous or subpar or has subpar mental capabilities. We look at these things in the greater scope and my first version of this said, they're all worthless. I want to temper that. They're not worthless. It's not worth it to be, or it's not worthless to be beautiful. It's not worthless to be intelligent. It's not worthless that you've accomplished things that should give you a sense of uh, confidence within scope or a, a, maybe a sense of satisfaction. Those are fine. It's fine to enjoy those things. If you're an intelligent person, you like solving puzzles, great. That's wonderful. Uh, celebrate that. It's a, something God gave us to enjoy. But those are not worthy of being a part of your identity. If you were <laughs> to... If you were to so much celebrate some aspect of yourself, your personality, your accomplishment, and say, if that was taken away, I wouldn't be me anymore, then you have a flawed view of self. And this is why I believe with all confidence that the poison that we shove down our own and young people's minds of trying to trump up a sense of self-confidence based on any misinformation, false information, or even just, hey, at least you're really good at flipping pencils around your fingers. That's something, right? No, that's not something. Whether we build our sense of self-confidence on a lie, an out-and-out -out lie, or whether we build it on uh, some misperception of the importance of something, neither is going to satisfy. And this is exactly why the gospel is hated. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ robs us of any ability to have confidence in ourselves. It doesn't give us the ability to pat ourselves on the back and say, Jesus did 99%, but I did 1%. It's that Jesus paid it all. We were hopeless and we were wretched and we were in need of one who would save us with no value, no strength of our own. Romans 5.1 explains this for us. It says, when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that we will, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also shall rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 
Until we have come to a full and expansive understanding of what it means that we were without strength, that we were ungodly, that we were sinners, that we were enemies with God in our natural estate, then we cannot come to a full appreciation of what really makes us valuable. And that is that the God of the universe has valued us at the price of the blood and the life of his son, Jesus Christ. That's your statement of self-value and self-worth. It's not in how great you are at flipping marbles or jumping rope. It's not how great you are, how much money you make. It doesn't mean a thing. It has nothing to do with how tall, beautiful, strong, weak, or handsome or intelligent you are. We are all in absolute and total need of God's grace. And there's no other way that we can look at ourselves and have an honest view right? If we're trying to find our confidence in anything else, it could be as simple as being the tallest person in the room. There's going to be someone somewhere along the line that is taller, right? There's going to be someone somewhere along the line that is smarter. There's going to be somewhere, someone, somewhere, somewhere along the line that is richer. And then what happens? Or on the other side, all of those traits and things will eventually be lost. And then have you lost yourself? Have you lost your identity? If you had your view of your value in those things, then you never had it. You were always living a lie because none of those things were of any value when it comes to the greater human experience. We need to understand where we were apart from God. But it's not just for non-Christians. That's for, uh, that hopefully will bring us to the humility to say, I need your love. I need your salvation. I need your provision. I have nothing to offer you and you have everything to offer me. You have nothing to gain and everything already paid. And you've invited me into your salvation because you value me, because you love me, not for what I give you, O Lord, but for what I am as your created child. Romans 7 gives a picture of a Christian who's also struggling with confidence placed in the wrong uh, source, the wrong thing. It says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to my inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7 describes Paul as a Christian, as a believer, who is still putting some confidence in his flesh. Say, I get it, Lord. You forgave me. You bore, I am born again. You gave me new life. And now I'm going to rely on my flesh because now there's certainly some good thing that I can bring to you now in the second phase, in the growth phase of our salvation. There must be something that I can do. And it leaves us where it left Paul. A wretched man that I am. Self-confidence causes the greatest tragedy in this world, and that's that a person does not come to trust the love and provision of Jesus Christ. They don't get saved because of pride, because of self-confidence. Self-confidence causes the second greatest tragedy in this world, which is a Christian trying to rely on their own resources, on their own flesh, trying to fake it till they make it in Christianity. And they're left feeling hopeless, alone, lost, defeated 
Anytime you're discouraged in your Christian walk, give yourself a little high five. Because you finally realized what God wanted you to realize all along. You're hopeless at this. And that's okay. Because he's done everything and given you everything. And every time we fail, every time we fall down, every time I fail to show you love, fail to forgive you, fail to do whatever it is that is in the character of Christ, I can be assured that I've done that by relying on my own flesh, on my own resources, rather than Christ's. So, Romans 7. And every day that we experience that moment, we can say, Oh, Lord, I've fallen again because I put my confidence in me rather than walking by faith in you. And this brings us to our title passage of tonight, our final passage that we'll just briefly discuss. He says, beware, uh, this is Philippians 3, 2 through 7. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship, circumcision, let's go do that again, circumcision, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? I won the religion by the rules game. Doesn't matter. I was the tallest guy on the basketball court. I was the most religious holy person. I had the right education. I had the right lineage, things outside of my control. I had the right actions and the right choices and I made the right behaviors. I went to the right school. I got all the kudos. I was the coolest guy in the room, the strongest guy in the room. I have every reason to brag on all y'all. Because of my incredible pedigree and my resume according to the flesh. But those things that were gained to me, those I have counted loss. Paul looked at all of the things that would give him confidence in uh, self-confidence and confidence when he walked into the room. Listen to that guy. He went to the right school. Listen to that guy. He's done. Th- Listen to that guy. He's the most zealous Pharisee there is, right? Any room he would have walked into with a certain degree of, of respect, being able to hold his head high. And what he learned and that we must learn according to the Holy Writ is that all those things that make you special, all those things that make you, you are lost. I don't want to go too deep into the, uh, the history and the, and the word behind this, but it's a word that has to do with things that go down the toilet. This is a strong word. He wasn't just saying, I mean, lost sounds almost uh, pleasant, right? But he used some rough language here. He said, all those things, they were human waste to me. Are you ready to say that with Paul? I've been in church every Sunday. I went to seminary. I finished a Bible course. I am the tallest. I am the smartest. I made a million dollars. I have a very beautiful home. 
I have a great family. These are all things that you would put on your resume. Are you ready to call those things human waste in relationship to the single important identifying feature of your life, which is the fact that you are the beloved child saved by grace by the Son of God, Jesus Christ? No, I'm not. I know I'm not. Because I wake up a lot of days feeling pretty bad about myself because there just weren't enough people in church and well, nobody really listened. And I don't know if anyone got my point. Or I didn't feel good about that sermon. So I know every time I wake up that I'm still thinking all those things of this world are more important than the true source of what my confidence and my identity is to be. So I'm growing. I hope you're growing too. I hope you're finding out as you go through life when something hurts, when something stings, when you feel like you've been uh, taken down a notch by life, that all you're doing is finding out that you were putting some of your confidence there. You had your, some confidence in the flesh. And that's the great thing about life or the terrible thing. It's not going to leave you with one thing left but Jesus. One of the things that always amazed me about Dick Berg, co-elder here for so many years, is that his, his nerve disorder that he got around 19, or 2000, uh, 2000, 2001, took away his ability to play the piano. Now, I'm a lousy musician, but a musician nevertheless, it brings me great joy and pleasure to be able to pay, play. And Dick played beautifully, there's recordings, beautifully. I never heard him complain. I'm sure there were hard moments, but never mind the fact that he made some of the most beautiful piano music you could ever hope to hear in any church, in any place in this world. It wasn't a part of his identity. So he was in a right relationship to his music. If we understand that we have no reason for confidence in the flesh, and we find our identity entirely in Christ, then we can then come into a healthy relationship with everything else. Our relationships, our money, our relationship to finances, our money, our possessions, our things, our appearance, our intelligence, all those things can just become the fun side stories that they were meant to be to the ultimate point of the confidence which we have in Jesus Christ. And I hope this week each of us can move just one step closer to having that pure and unmixed confidence in Jesus as the lover of our souls, as the salvation of us, and so might understand that that's what makes others valuable as well, that Jesus loved them, no matter how difficult they are otherwise to love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you that it robs us of all our delusions and deceptions of trying to find value, meaning, worth, or confidence in ourselves. How thankful we are that it gives us every reason to have confidence in your love, your provision, your plan for the future, and your willingness to use us and be glorified in and through us, in spite 
of our inability to offer anything of our own unto you. We thank you, O Lord, for this wonderful revelation. We thank you that you've loved us so greatly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.